Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the Greensill lobbying scandal. And you ask us whether our national mourning protocols are up to date for modern Britain. The Greensill lobbying scandal is rumbling on. David Cameron has finally um, released a statement about the accusations against him and his position working for Greensill Capital and the closeness of Lex Greensill to his government um, and the lobbying that has taken place since. Um Stephen, what does his statement say? Have we learned anything new from it? So his statement essentially says, um, I haven't acted unlawfully, which, I mean, I just feel if I had been advising David Cameron on his PR, I wouldn't have led off with those laws that I wrote. I didn't break them. Um, <laughs> but, but he does have lessons to learn. And then there's some kind of, you know, actually you know, every time I meet MBS, I talk to him about human rights, which, I mean, okay, Um I suppose that is possibly true. I find it very hard to believe myself, but maybe I'm overly cynical. Um, and I think the, the the difficulty this creates for the government, which is why they've tried to get out ahead of it by announcing an inquiry into it, is then essentially what he said is, yeah, I did something wrong, but no, it hasn't broken any laws, which, again, it's not the statement I would have advised him to make. And it does mean that the kind of broader question of how we regulate lobbying, political access and all of the rest is kind of sort of front and centre in a week where, because of the death of um, Prince Philip, there is no other political news and is going to blow it off the story. And then there's the added controversy that he released. It, he released that statement in exactly that context. So you could perhaps quite fairly suggest that he tried to sneak it out while people were distracted by a bigger story and while there's a bit of a media political blackout um, in order to focus on the Duke's passing. You could you could level that accusation at him, which I think plenty of people have. But then also, as Stephen says, even though we are in this period of national mourning where we're covering the death of Prince Philip and and lots of and you know the government isn't making any official announcements the, the Labour Party isn't either um the news still has to happen so in practice his statement that he snuck out at this point is actually the biggest story yeah exactly I think that if if you know if the intention was to have it buried beneath the conversation being elsewhere then that has kind of backfired you know I noticed that there were MPs on the Westminster hour last night quite a lot of the political programming has been sort of shuffled around and changed but that you know there was a sort of consensus uh, on the program that um, the timing of his statement was was poorly judged um including the you know Tory MP Tim Tim Loughton saying that um 
And really, I mean, I th- it is very embarrassing for David Cameron. And people may say, well, you know, he's a former prime minister. He's a, he's yesterday's man. He's a private citizen now, you know, trying to trying to do his job. And he, you know, acted within the lobbying rules, you know, regardless of whether or not we think they should be changed. He was doing doing his job. I just don't think that that argument washes because, of course, he's got such he's got such appeal as a former prime minister for anyone who wants someone lobbying for them on on their behalf. But also, he does receive public money. Um, there is there's a there's an allowance called the public duty cost allowance um, for former prime ministers um, to sort of fund their their office and secretarial costs for anything that they do in public life after they've been prime minister. And I've just looked at the latest um, figures that the government released in August 2020, and he claimed £111,457 from that fund uh, in 2019 to 20. So he's not a private citizen. You know, there's massive public interest in what David Cameron's doing. And of course, the implications for this government are far more serious um, because that could be an ongoing story that could degrade public trust in this government and could expose further... um, conversations or meetings that ministers have had that you know s- sort of whiff of cronyism even if they don't technically break break the rules um and we know from everything that's happened during this pandemic in terms of the contracts that were given without tender um you know ppe contracts that weren't fulfilled properly text between matt hancock and someone who ran the pub near his old constituency home you know who ended up with one of these these contracts for for the covid response there's been so many stories that have created this image of this kind of you know gentleman's club at the top of politics where people just you know have to ring up their old mates and and they get a, a big contract for something that they're not experts in there's that there's that pub there's that image that has been built throughout this pandemic. Um, And now the chumocracy of the David Cameron years is bleeding into it too. So what does that mean? What does that rumbling on mean for the government? And, you know, will an inquiry be enough to quell the scandal? It's interesting, isn't it? I think especially with the green sales scandal that's unfolding, I think it's a, a tricky one for the opposition and for the media because it is basically a very complicated story with multiple layers to it. And the the thing that I think has captured people's imagination and has been focused on so far um, are those um, very egregious examples, like you mentioned, Anush, of David Cameron um, texting Rishi Sunak, and Rishi Sunak had to release his, um, his replies to David Cameron after an FOI request. Although he, he phrased it as though he'd done it voluntarily. He very much didn't. Um, he literally had to. But, you know, the things like that. So the the drink between um, Lex Greensill and David Cameron and Matt Hancock or the texts between Rishi Sunak and David Cameron. I think those are those are quite easy examples for people to latch on to and, and think about and think about whether they feel entirely comfortable with that, even if it was within the rules. But I think that the the broader problem is that the green sill thing is really complicated and the actual sort of the network of money involved and his links to government, the the, the public money that he received, whether those rules um what you know, whether the rules were followed when he was allocated that money, um also whether those rules are even adequate, you know, not just in terms of lobbying, but the allocation of public funds in a broader sense. Um I think it's tremendously complicated and 
also like where Greensill's money went and its relationships with other companies, the you know the potential job losses in the British steel industry, but also you know, some you know well-informed readers the last time I wrote about this were quick to point out that really this this money is international is internationally spread out, and the you know the the fact that Greensill is now in administration will have really far-reaching consequences for people all around the world in terms of in terms of their jobs and i think um it's 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 a bit of a challenge to unpick all of that because i think that's where people tune out slightly because of the of that kind of complicated web of arrangements so i think you know david cameron sending texts in a chummy way when he when he you know even if he could within the rules when he probably shouldn't have been that's easier for people to get their heads around than the than the broader scale of it. And I think that's the challenge really in terms of whether this well, whether this properly sticks to the Conservatives. And by that I mean not just David Cameron, but the current Conservative government. Yeah, I think that's really true. And of course there's been lobby so many lobbying scandals over the years. And and I think if they had truly captured the pro- public's imagination at any point, we wouldn't have the weak lobbying laws that we have at the moment where in-house lobbyists are, you know, um exempt from from the regulations that are in place. So I suppose if if and if we had sort of like an advisory committee for business appointments for former um, government officials and and ministers that had any teeth, then I suppose you know if we if we had anything like that that could actually um, have some kind of sanctions or some kind of rules for people rather than just having an advisory function, um, then you know that that would be that would be a better way of managing how lobbying works. And I think that that something like that would be in place if any of those former scandals had actually touched the public in a way that meant that politicians really who who have an interest in not tightening up these rules, by the way, um, would would really have, have done something about it. And the fact that there's sort of 5,000 jobs that hang in the balance at Liberty Steel, which depended on Greensill, um, it was its main financial backer, now it's gone bust, those jobs hang in the balance. Maybe something like that will shift, you know, the complicated story about lobbying and lots of different people and money going in all sorts of different places and, oh, I can't really keep track of it, Um, I'm not really following it, convert that kind of reaction to that story to, oh, you know, David Cameron and his mates have, have been doing something that seems grubby that's led to you know these people losing their jobs and and the ordinary the ordinary person loses out from from this kind of way of doing government and if it if that does shift then maybe we will finally have a way of a, a, a sort of public will to tighten up the lobbying rules because let's not forget that greensill capital the whole point of or the sort of the the nominal point of the company was to make things easier for small businesses this idea of um sort of supply chain financing meaning that small business small businesses can be paid on time imagine if you're a small business now and you see these stories about how these big businesses with links to to government can get things done or or can influence things or cause conversations to happen between ministers and their civil servants that they'd never have a chance to do imagine how that would feel especially after a year like this which has been terrible for business so maybe there is you know maybe this will be the thing to make that shift in public opinion and make people interested in what otherwise sounds like a quite complicated story that's quite difficult for for journalists to tell easily yeah and i think the thing is is, is although obviously the um the economic effect of of greensill's collapse is going to be teeny tiny in terms of yeah kind of we never we're not going to look back and go oh the greensill recession but 
some people will lose their jobs as a result. Some of them may be telegenic, some of them may be party political anyway. And because it is likely that we're going to have a a time where the economy is notionally in recovery, but for most people, what they actually experience is shops closing, high street getting worse, people being laid off after however long on furlough. You can sort of, even though I don't think it's the most likely scenario, I think it's so plausible that you have a situation in which in the same way people would say, like in the run-up to the 2015 election, they'd say you'd people, hear people all the time going, didn't Cameron and Miliband go to the same school? And it's just like, no, but I understand why you think that. Um, and then you can easily imagine there being a thing where someone goes, oh, like my mate's shop had to close because of the green sill. And it'll just like, mm, that's not why, but I, 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 I can see how you might come to believe that. <laughs> and I, yeah. and, and I, can, I think it is definitely something that has the potential to be that kind of story. But... This does kind of come back to one of the sort of unspoken, the unspoken original sin here, which is essentially the deal we kind of give MPs post the expenses scandal and ministers is, yeah, ministers like, yeah, you get your three months um, severance. If you're an MP, you get a, a capped bit of severance pay if you lose your seat, which also given the circumstance in which people lose their seat is often when they become not less, not more politically influential. Um, so actually they're ability to get rehired is sometimes fairly limited. But don't worry, we've invented this industry called lobbying where you can claw back some of the pay and security that we've decided we don't want to level with the voters about you needing in office. Um, because now, obviously, Cameron is, is not a poster boy for that thing. He quite simply could sit at home in his nice shed, you know, collecting interest and, you know, occasionally being paid to give talks about, you know, global leadership in a changing world. But I do think if the the other danger for the government is just as um, there's a group of Conservative MPs who never forgave David Cameron for clamping down on expenses because they were like, this has materially made my life and the job being an MP uh, worse. If the government gets in a situation where either this inquiry turns out to be one which it becomes serious or in which they're forced to do something which actually is tangible, that I think will also create problems in the parliamentary party um, because... Yeah, because the implicit deal of politics at the moment is, don't worry, you'll be looked after by, you know, angry tomato lobbying or whatever silly name they happen to have. Yeah, I feel, I feel like there are there are two kind of separate stories which overlap with the green sill one, but you could kind of deal with separately in a broader context where I think like there's the first one in which this is very similar to Carillion and the collapse of Carillion and like the the allocation of public money and how certain firms get their contracts and outsourcing and that kind of that broader issue, which Rachel Reeves, sorry to bring her up on yet another new season podcast, which Rachel Reeves has been really pushing <laughs> in recent weeks. Like that's already a thing that Labour has been really focusing on and um, have been kind of trying to, to pin the government down on and this is a new manifestation of that but I think the thing that is different as Stephen was saying is the is the stuff around lobbying um and I think I suppose because I'm quite new to political journalism still I had much more sympathy with Zara Sultana the quite new Labour MP who stood up in the House of Commons and said, in, you know, in one of her first months as an MP, she said, you know, I get sent stuff from Heathrow. I get sent stuff from Google. This is crazy. I hadn't realized that there was this whole industry called lobbying um, and the MPs, you know, are invited to so many events and lunches and sent so many gifts. 
um, to be lobbied on behalf of really big firms. She was really surprised by it and was quite rightly mocked for it. But I think that certainly that's a little bit my experience of it in that I my feeling is that if you're just a member of the public, the I think it wouldn't be terribly obvious to you that lobbying is sort of the third pillar. You know, people complain about a revolving door between media and politics and see examples of that with someone like Allegra Stratton, who used to be a senior journalist at ITV and at the BBC, now working for Boris Johnson in Downing Street. Um, they see an obvious example like that, but they don't see that actually the, the third area like that, where there's even more of a revolving door, is into lobbying. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a line in Marie Leconte's book about sort of what it feels like to be a Westminster insider, where, you know, she talks about how there's a sort of joke in Westminster that, you know, if you want someone to pay for your drinks on a Westminster night out, you should get a lobbyist to do it. And I just think the presence of, of lobbyists and the, and the way lobbying is just a huge part of the Westminster ecosystem would be very surprising to lots of people. And then that's a much bigger conversation because it's not just a conservative thing. Um, if, you know, there's so many senior new labor figures who work for lobbying firms and i think that whole culture um would be quite surprising to people if they really understood the full extent of it but i'm not sure in whose interests it would be labor or conservative to really lay all of that bare because no political party would come out terribly well from that as stephen says it's kind of like the great retirement deal of politics you lose your seat you can get a nice job in lobbying yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's good sometimes to look at the way that, that Westminster politics works through a kind of naive view to see what's actually wrong with it. And I think it's, you know, while while she may have been mocked for, for being so surprised that people will try and influence MPs and influence policy in this way, you know, I do think that it doesn't ring very authentically when ministers try and defend things like this by saying well I get you know I get messages from businesses in my constituency all the time I get letters from businesses to my department all the time and I hand them over to the officials and it goes through the official process because that is that is just not how it, how it actually works and I think if you are someone who is outside of the government who doesn't have personal links with it, um, who doesn't work for a big organisation that already has clout or, or a charity, um, who has tried to, you know, get a minister or an MP to pay attention to the plight of your business, um, then you do know that it's 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 quite difficult to get those conversations to take place because politicians are so busy and they do get so much correspondence. But I do think that that defence that I've heard a number of ministers trot out on various political programmes when they've been asked about the scandal and the text to Rishi Sunak, um, just doesn't ring very true. It just doesn't stand up because if you're an ordinary person who would like to influence policy in some way, then you know it doesn't work like that. And if you hear more and more stories about these kind of texts on personal phones between very senior people, then it then it then it will make you feel feel angry that the suggestion is that everyone can do this, you know, because because you just can't. Um, obviously, the the constituency system is there so that you can go and speak to your MP and. Many MPs are very, you know, most MPs are very good in the way that they um, they stick up for their constituents and they listen to the concerns of the businesses and their constituencies, etc. But um, you just know that there's a very, very different there's a very different rule for professional lobbyists and people who have personal links with people in government or who have influence in Parliament um, and everyone else.
If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Ask Us. Us. Our question this week is from Martin Bailey. Uh, The reaction to the national mourning protocols over the Duke of Edinburgh dying suggests that modern Britain isn't ready for when the Queen dies and how it will be mourning on crack. Are these traditions too outdated for us now? Well, I think it's it's interesting because we all know that there are these protocols sort of in the media and in government for when a senior royal dies. Um, There was that excellent piece by Sam Knight a few years ago about sort of every detail that happens in public life um, in in preparation for for the death of the Queen. Um, And so I suppose as a British public, we are in a way prepared for for the reaction um, and people quite rightly want to want to read the details of a, of a of a especially a character like prince philip a long life lived and and the many things that he did um many people have grown up with him you know he's been such a constant so it's an important story to cover in great depth um and it's uh and it's going to be at the top of many people's minds but i i was quite interested to see how many um how how big the dips in viewing figures were on on friday evening um i think the the program that got the was highest rated was Gogglebox, which actually didn't have any Philip uh, coverage in it. Um, and you know, BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, they they lost a lot of viewers that evening because they'd pulled, in general, their usual scheduling to um, to sh- sort of cover the life and the tributes of the Duke of Edinburgh. So. I thought that was quite interesting and there was quite a bit of um there were a number of complaints sent in so many actually that BBC had to create its own kind of submission form for complaints about um there being too much coverage of a certain topic. Um so I wonder if you know I'm not sort of old enough to have been a journalism to to have been a journalist when something else like this has happened recently to know whether this is always the reaction or whether or not there is a little bit of a shift perhaps perhaps as much to do with how we consume our media these days than than how we used to in how much um sort of appetite there is for wall-to-wall coverage you know people upon hearing the news would most likely today sort of take it in and read what what they're interested in online as it's breaking and then perhaps by the time it gets to you know the six o'clock news or by the time it gets to Friday night and and you're resting from your from your working week you've read and, and heard everything that you want to hear and perhaps that's why there was that slightly divided reaction I mean I listened to some of uh so I was I was interested to see that um, and the BBC has been very good, I, th- I think, of doing its usual thing where it reports stuff against the BBC. I mean, I listened to some of a little clip of 
Chris Mason on Any Answers, I think it was, where he read out some of the criticism of the show, um, uh, of any questions, actually, which, Stephen, you were on. Um, some people were saying that there, sh- there should there should have been other questions. Um, not not criticising you, but criticising the um, the topics. So I thought that's, that, that I've, I've found interesting to follow because you kind of assume this is how things are done. You know, this is the British way of, of, of royal events in general, but of course, royal deaths in particular, you kind of assume this is how it works. But then there has been a little bit of pushback from the public against that. Yeah, Alva, what, what do you think as, as our kind of the most keen royal watcher of the podcast? host? <laughs> well, so I was saying this to Stephen on Friday and I was I was beginning to make the point that I think, you know, the circumstances of Prince Philip's death were so different to the circumstances around Princess Diana's death that it's hard to compare. And he reminded me that I was barely conscious when (laughs) I was two years old when Princess Diana died. So I suppose I I can only imagine (laughs) what it was like. Um, I can't really draw, um, similar to Eunice, I can't can't really draw an accurate comparison with any other royal death. Um, I think that the, the question from Martin Bailey does... I think tap into something that most people will have been thinking about, but not really verbalizing was, which is that this moment of Prince Philip's death is causing everyone to reflect on the next big looming death, which could quite likely be the queen herself and thinking about how the, how mourning and marking that will work. And I think it just, um, since the question is sort of about whether, you know, these protocols need to be updated, basically, I actually had this feeling over the weekend that maybe those protocols that we've seen for Prince Philip would be more appropriate for the Queen because when she passes away, that will be a major political moment because, you know, not least we'll have a new monarch after such a long time. And I think that, you know, the be more to say politically about the you know how the monarchy has been strengthened but also been in crisis at various points um during her reign and the legacy that she leaves behind her and then what you know king charles <laughs> would be like i think it's sort of um it's it's more complicated when it's a royal consort you know who who's a big personality and who you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff around, you know, his support of a powerful woman um, on the international stage and that kind of interesting role. But I, I think that maybe, especially when someone passes away after a, a very long and interesting and healthy life, they have a, a long life to be reflected on. But certainly it's not as shocking as something like Princess Diana's death. So I, I think I think that's, that's a, a, an important context of it that ultimately, you know, Prince Philip passed away when he was quite old and he is a consort. Um, so the the circumstances are less inherently fascinating or, or like and don't generate quite as much discussion. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's an odd one because this might reflect how out of touch I and everyone I'm related to am. Obviously, I have to have the disclaimer as someone who, who contributed to the interminable programming. Um, where I did feel a bit like, you know, Hawkeye and the Avengers, where you've got like all of these superpowered beings and then some guy who inexplicably fights evil with a bow and arrow in the 21st century. And you have like Peter Hennessy, Margaret <laughs> Simon Sharma, Max Hastings, Jenny Bond, and then me 
And they're just like, wow, I think I'm the only person here who doesn't have a, like a Samuel Johnson prize and or a peerage. I think not just because I was on part of it. I actually think um, this is actually not so much a way that Twitter distorts politics, but in a way, it's an example of people being able to find a home on social media. And then when um, Princess Diana died, I remember my mother and yeah, loads of people I yeah, related to or family, friends, all this being like, God, is it gone on to day four? You know, kind of what's happening to this country? Why are people sensationalizing it? But what essentially what Twitter has allowed is for kind of like social liberals to find each other in a different way. And then I think people are then slightly more emboldened to go, actually, come on, really? Did we need eight hours of this? Um, because although the vast majority of people in the United Kingdom were sort of very affected by um, by the death of Diana, and, and people complained when the BBC kind of they felt minimised the death of the Queen Mother because she was, you know, the consort of a of a, 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 a long dead monarch. I kind of think that probably it, what, the only thing that's changed is that those of us who um, Perhaps, particularly, I mean, so I, I, I'm always very pleased to be asked on the, the Sky paper review, he greased. But yeah, it's when you're discussing, like, you know, what about Prince Harry coming back? How will he feel? And it's just like, I have never met Prince Harry. I don't know how he feels about it. He's also, you know, I mean, I doubt he's the millionth person in the last year to have to, like, have a slightly awkward, well, we're not talking about the family argument at this funeral. But I actually think, um, and obviously I do have a vested interest here, but I, although I'm not going to pretend that I jumped for joy when I switched onto Six Music and instead of Sean Kearney, it was Ted Heath, but this is the kind of thing that we have a public broadcaster for. Uh, yeah, like ultimately, like the market can and visibly does provide Netflix. Indeed, the license fee provided iPlayer, right? So once you'd scrolled past the, the nice vintage pictures of him, you could get something else, right? Once I'm overcame my disappointment and I wasn't going to hear Sean Kearney and I was instead getting Ted Heath. I went on to sounds and, and, and just listened to Marianne Hobbs again. But the, the value of public sector broadcasting is it can do incredibly worthy stuff uh, at the passing of a historic event. And I'm sorry, the death of the longest lasting Prince Consort is a historic event. I think, and you know, NS readers will be able to enjoy me making this argument in the political. The person who I think is the most successful politician of the 20th, 21st century is Queen Elizabeth II, right? Yeah. And one of those, yeah, there were more Republicans in 1947 than there are today in the United Kingdom. There were more Republicans in the Parliamentary Labour Party of Clement Attlee, right? The founder, you know, helped co-found NATO, a government that still had imperial ambitions, for goodness sake, had more Republicans on its front bench than Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, Man, you know, felt able to have it. Jeremy Corbyn felt that he had to pretend that he... Okay, sorry. Maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe he just had Christmas lunch very, very late in the day and he really did watch the Queen's speech. But he felt that he had to gesture towards monarchism because of the political success of this family. So I do think it is an important and significant event in its own right. Um, but I also think that, yeah, the, the value of, of public sector broadcasting is it, it can go... Time to crank up Ted Heath on Six Music, right? No commercial music. Like, Magic FM didn't feel able to be like, okay, lads, put Jim Callahan on. <laughs> yeah, like, I, and I just think it's a beautiful thing about public sector broadcasting is to produce, with the exception of the very interesting hour of, of me and, and some eminent historians, to produce programming that personally I would never seek out or want to listen to at a moment of 
historical, national, and yes, geopolitical significance, because we do not have very many monarchies left. Now, just before we finish up, I'd like to mention something new we're doing on the New Statesman podcast. Um, If you're a regular listener, you'll know that we've been closely following the lead up to the Scottish elections on the 6th of May. These could be pivotal elections, not just for the next four years in Scottish politics, but potentially for the future of the United Kingdom. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be doing something a bit different. Each Wednesday, we'll publish a special episode into this very podcast feed, dedicated entirely to the latest developments in Scotland. And it'll be hosted by the New Statesman Scotland editor, Chris Deering, who's with me now. Chris, thanks so much for doing this. And what do you think you'll be covering in these special episodes? Well, hi, Anush, and thanks for having me on. As, as you'll know, the, the SNP has a monstrous lead going into this uh, Holyrood election, which is now about four weeks away. So they are something between 20 and 25 points ahead in the polls, the opposition parties, well in their, uh, their rear mirror. Um, and so the next month will be really about whether those opposition parties can reign in the SNP to any significant degree. The, the, the main question on top of that is obviously whether the SNP can get their overall majority, either on their own or with perhaps a coalition with the uh, pro-independence Green Party, as they'll see that as giving them a mandate to ask for a second independence referendum. And we've seen over the last year or so uh, support for independence has risen up to somewhere between 50 and 58%, according to the polls. But actually, in recent months, that started to level down a bit, and we're probably now about 50-50. Some polls have even shown independence support at 45 to 55, which takes them back to where they were in the referendum. So there's a, a great deal to, uh, to, to discuss there. Um, we also know that in the last year or so, the uh, independence movement has rather turned on itself. We've had the, the Salmond affair. We have had various... Uh, other parties set up uh, pro-independence parties to take on the SNP, not least Alex Salmon's ALBA party. So we'll be looking at uh, what impact they might have. And then, of course, there is the uh, there are the consequences of what follows this election. Um, as I say, if the SNP get that majority, they will be demanding from Boris Johnson the right to hold a second independence referendum. And everything, everything we know about Boris suggests that he's not going to give them one. So that sets the course for something of a constitutional standoff. And we'll be looking at that as well. Great. That sounds brilliant. And I know from looking at our website stats that one of our most popular pieces at the moment is by um, Ben Walker from our data journalism team. He's been tracking the polls for a while. Um, And I've heard that he'll be joining you on some of your podcasts. Is that right? That's right. Each week I'll be speaking to Ben and digging into the the numbers uh, and uh, the changes that we might see as the the campaign goes on. Uh, I'll also be joined by guests from the world of Scottish politics. And in fact, my first guest on Wednesday is Blair McDougall, who is a Labour strategist. And uh, Blair led the successful Better Together campaign in 2014. We'll be discussing both the uh, position of the SNP going into this election and whether that that lead can be reined back in, uh, and also looking at the prospects for the Labour Party in Scotland with their uh, shiny new leader, Anna Sarwa. That all sounds brilliant. Thank you so much for running us through it. And of course, um, some of your regular New Statesman podcast hosts will also be popping up on the podcast on occasion too. Um, So these episodes will be published straight into the New Statesman podcast feed for the next four Wednesdays, starting this week on Wednesday, the 14th of April. I'm really looking forward to listening to it. Thanks so much, Chris. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pernod And you can find me at Twitter at, at Stephen KB. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you'd like to ask us a question for the next podcast, you can email podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. 